Please turn with me behind the songs to page 12 in that section of the Heidelberg Catechism to which we have come. And especially tonight, we'll consider the words of question and answers 16 through 19. And we'll be speaking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. But before we launch into the main subject of the sermon, I want to read question and answer 19 to you and just call one thing to your attention at the outset here. If I asked, how do you come to know this, that is the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved us from our sins, the answer is that the Holy Gospel tells me that God Himself began to reveal the Gospel already in paradise and later He proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and portrayed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and finally He fulfilled it through His own dear Son. I just want to remind you that when we speak of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of His people and how we understand that death as a substitution for us Him taking the punishment in our place it's not as if the Christian church only figured that out when Jesus came but Jesus of course was announced in the very Garden of Eden right after mankind had fallen into sin and all throughout the Old Testament from that point forward Jesus was foreshadowed and prophesied and announced in many ways and he of course came into the world that dear son of God to save us and spoke to us most clearly about what he did and the apostles expand on that but let's not forget that this wasn't something that this isn't a religion or an idea that was made up uh, when Jesus came but him coming for the sins of his people was ordained from long ago and taught throughout the scripture and you'll You'll hear about that tonight as we survey some of the scripture explaining to us how it is that Jesus was able uh, to die for our sins. So I just want to call that uh, to your attention here at the outset. And then from the Word of God, just to sort of launch out into the message, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. And you all know this passage. This is the passage, as the Catechism just said, was the beginning of the revelation of the Gospel in Paradise, in the Garden of Eden. This is the preaching of the Gospel, the first preaching of the Gospel in the Scripture. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse, well, just reading uh, tonight, verse 15. We read it frequently. The Lord God was speaking to the serpent and he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And of course, Christ is the one spoken of there who deals the crushing blow 
to the work of Satan trying to derail humanity. But Christ will come to crush him in his death and in his resurrection, saving his people. Of course, Satan striking the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ, bruising him in his horrific death for our sins. You see, here's the first place where we begin to hear about that in the Scripture. And uh, we will turn uh, to the Lord to uh, teach us more about that tonight. Let us pause to pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we stand in the long line of people who have looked to Christ for forgiveness of their sins through his blood. And we remember tonight that people have been looking for the promised Messiah for thousands of years ever before uh, he came through the various shadows and prophecies that they experienced him. And uh, we today have tonight the great privilege of looking back upon his life and his work and the revelation of him and all of his uh, glories and his grace coming to us and living and dying for us and being raised for us and us having the privilege of the apostles by your Holy Spirit explaining to us the meaning of his death with such clarity and power and your Spirit enlivening us to appreciate that. Help us tonight to sharpen our thinking about his death and apply it to our lives uh, that you might be praised for we ask in Christ's name alone Amen Keep your uh, catechisms open if you will to page 13 as we'll be interacting with uh, the catechism throughout the course of the sermon Uh, Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus we had said a couple of weeks ago when we left off in our series on the catechism that we know That some people, when they say that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, that they really don't know what they mean by that expression. I mean, a lot of people say that. Jesus Christ died for my sins on the cross. He died on the cross because He loved me. But to many people, that expression has really just become a superstitious mantra or a meaningless chant that sort of makes them feel good and in some sense relieves some of the guilt that they sense for their sin, but they don't really know what they mean when they are saying that. Or worse, we noted that there are some people who use that expression very quickly. Jesus died for my sins on the cross. And they know exactly what they mean by that, but unfortunately, it's not what the Bible says we ought to mean if we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. They may think that the real reason that Jesus died on the cross for their sins was just so that God could show them that He was very serious about sin. Because they may have been taught that God forgives by grace, which we believe, but God has to freely freely forgive only by grace, so He would never have to pour out punishment, otherwise it wouldn't be true forgiveness. And so the whole reason that Jesus died was simply so that we would not take advantage of the free grace that God gives us. Some people might say Jesus died for me on the cross. He died for my sins. And what they mean by that is that He gave us the ultimate example of humility that we must follow. And if we follow that, then we will be saved. They say we needed somebody to come and show us the true way to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He did that by going all the way unto death. And if we just follow His pattern as best that we can, then we will be saved. 
It's just true that some people have these concepts when they say Jesus died on the cross for their sins. But we noted that uh, last time that would not be an acceptable way of understanding uh, Jesus dying on the cross. In fact, it would be to deny the whole reason that He died on the cross in the first place. Look at question and answer 12. Let me just remind you of the reason Jesus died on the cross. Let me ask the question and you respond with the answer. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? What's the answer? So that when we say Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we don't say God was just showing that He took sin very seriously, so we shouldn't take advantage of His grace. We don't just say that Jesus was setting an ultimate example of humility for us to follow in order that God might accept us. No. The meaning of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is that He was satisfying the claims of God's justice for us. That we deserve punishment in this world and forever after and his claims had to be satisfied and Jesus went to the cross to take our place as our substitute to bear the wrath of God for us God wills that his justice be satisfied and that is what was happening on the cross the question that the catechism wants us to be very clear about following that understanding is what is it about Jesus and Jesus only that qualifies him to be able to take away our sin in that way. What is unique about Jesus that makes him really the only one who is able to satisfy the claims of God's justice on our behalf? It's important to answer that question so that when we say Jesus died for our sins on the cross, we know the Jesus about whom we're speaking. We don't understand what makes him uniquely qualified to take the punishment away from us on himself, then we don't know Jesus. Uh, This is not only true of all of the cults who are out in the world who deny that he's the Son of God, who deny all sorts of things about him, but it's also true of people who are simply ignorant about what makes Jesus unique and what qualifies him to be our mediator. If you don't know who he is, and yet you profess his name, you're not really professing his name, are you? So the Catechism wants us to be clear about what makes Jesus uniquely qualified to satisfy the claims of God's justice for our sins. That's the basic question. And I'll ask question 18 in the Catechism and you give me the answer. Who is the mediator, true God and at the same time truly human and truly righteous? What's the answer? Our Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator who has given us to set us completely free and to make us right with God. And I want you to notice in question 18 that there are two, really, two characteristics, if you will, two descriptions of Jesus Christ. These are the qualifications that He has that make Him uniquely qualified to take away our punishment. It's He's true God and at the same time truly human and truly righteous we'll combine those two into one he is true God first of all 
and He is at the same time truly human and truly righteous. Now all of you who have professed faith in this church know that one of the questions that is asked of you at that profession interview is, Is Jesus God or is He man? And the answer to that question is, Yes. He is 100% God and He is 100% man. He's not half of one and half the other, but He is true God, first of all. And He is, second of all, a truly righteous man. And the Scripture declares over and over that it would be necessary for our mediator, the one who would be able to satisfy the claims of God justice, to be both a truly righteous man and true God. Let's begin with that. He must be a truly righteous man. And the Catechism uh, tells us directly why in question 16. You may answer it. Why must he be truly human and truly righteous? God's justice... In order for Jesus to take the brunt of our sins upon Himself to deliver us from our own sinfulness and the guilt and the shame that we would otherwise endure, He must be a true man like we are. Our Romans 5.12 says, Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all men. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.21 that since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. You see, the entire destiny of the human race was wrapped up in a representative, right? Our first father, Adam. And he was a true man. And he fell and plunged us into disobedience. Therefore, the apostle says, logically, for us to be delivered as God's people from our sins... That must also come through a true man. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. The Lord Jesus had to be true man. Because man is who represents us as humankind. As the race of mankind. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, he was not speaking and saying, Adam, if you sin, somebody else or some other kind of creation will surely die. But he spoke to the man, and he said, Man, you will die. As the Catechism words it, Man has sinned, and man must pay for his sin. That is the terms of the covenant. That is the contract. That is the arrangement that God set down. So if we have somebody to take away, to satisfy the claims of God's justice against us, he must be like us. He must fulfill the conditions. When you eat of it, you will surely die. You are a man. And Jesus is a man to take away that punishment. It must be a man that has blood, human blood. The book of Hebrews talks a lot about this. The author of Hebrews is explaining, looking back on all the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the law. And listen to what he says. This is in Hebrews 9.19. He said, When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact... The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness. Now think about that. The author Hebrews looks back on all the Old Testament religions. I want you to notice something interesting. There is always blood that is necessary for the cleansing of all of the religious instruments and even of the community as a whole. So that they will not be consumed by the anger of God. And God did all of that for a reason. And the reason was to teach us that without the shedding of human blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. So when you see all of that blood being spilled and cleansing all of the instruments so that God will not consume them in His anger, you should learn the lesson that the only way that God will look over the sins of people is if blood is shed in their place. Verse 23, It was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these blood sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did He enter heaven to offer Himself again and again, the way that the high priest used to enter the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. What the author of Hebrews is saying is this, that just like the high priest and all of the religious workers appointed to cleanse things with blood in the Old Testament did repeatedly again and again and again, Christ needed to offer His blood to the Heavenly Father to cleanse us from all, from all of our sins. You see, this isn't just something that we learned in the New Testament when Jesus came, that His blood was going to take the place of our sins. They knew this in a shadowy form in the Old Testament, when they saw all this blood being shed, they would learn from that. They would learn from that by the grace and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That they were looking for the blood of a man who was coming to take their punishment away, their guilt. Hebrews 2.17 For this reason, Jesus had to be made like His brothers in every way in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That He might make atonement for the sins of His people. He had to be like us so He could make atonement for us. But notice that in Hebrews 2 there's that other idea entering here. Why did Jesus have to be a true man to take away our sin? It was also so that He could sympathize with us. So they could understand the temptation that we went through and legitimately face it and reject it. I want you to think about it. This is interesting. He had to be made like his brothers, that's like us, true man in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now I was thinking about a good way to drive this home. Have you ever had the thought cross your mind that God was unrealistic to expect of you the kind of obedience that He seems to require in the Word? Now that's sort of an uncomfortable question. I want, I want to ask you, I really want you to think about it and just be honest. Have you ever wondered if the expectations that you read about in the law of God for your life are unrealistic and overbearing? I mean, sure, we read passages in the Scripture like the Lord will uh, never allow us to go into temptation, that uh, He will not provide a way out. No temptation except that which is common to man. 
And yet, in our daily lives, sometimes we face situations and we are tempted sometimes to think, I think that God's expectations are completely unrealistic for me. I mean, I can give you some examples just that uh, I've come across. Uh, It typically comes when people will say things like, well, that's just who I am. Maybe some people will say, well, that's just the way God made me. Or that common excuse, you know, the devil made me do it. We speak very casually about the temptations that we face and we say, look, I mean, hey, we're all human. I mean, I can't... Do, I, do you really believe that God expects men and women to be completely obedient in their thoughts, in their words, in their actions, especially in their thoughts, to the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, say... I mean, really, didn't he make us physical beings with certain desires and certain ways, biological ways that we work? And are you really telling me that he, when he says, for example, thou shalt not commit adultery, that in my thoughts, as Jesus says, I have to be perfect? I mean, isn't that unrealistic? Or what about, you know, those situations where we're sitting in the back of the church or we're talking out in the parking lot or over under the tree or in the fellowship hall after a service and you know here come people talking about somebody else in the church maybe what their opinion is about what I don't know somebody's wearing or how somebody conducts their life or what somebody heard about this or that in their life and what's going on and are you really telling me that we have to be so vigilant that that it's just we're told that we are easily to reject this temptation to gossip or to be judgmental. And there are probably a hundred different examples that we all face in our daily lives, aren't there? In the daily life of the church. Where we face these temptations which, you know, look, this is just who we are. I mean, does God really expect that we're going to be able to resist these things? Now you fill in the blank in your own life and your own experience. And I know if you're honest, you have things like this. Does the Lord really expect me to be gracious and kind and compassionate toward my spouse? Does, do, does the Lord really expect me to be patient and, and obedient with, to my parents, even though they mess up sometimes? Children, you know, all these kinds of things that the Lord requires in His law. so easily for us to say, well, that's just who I am. Well, we're all human. We all sin anyway. The point of me bringing this up is this, that Jesus was a true man and he lived in our world and he suffered when he was tempted and so is able to help us who are being tempted all these days. You know, Jesus faced all of those temptations as forcefully as we are tempted by them. He had all of the pleasures of the world dangled in front of him every day of his life. Do you think men that Jesus does not know What it's like to be commanded to be pure in his thoughts and his words and his actions. Living in a world of beautiful people that he was attracted to. Well, he was. And he lived holily. And what about Jesus having access to the inside information about everybody's life just to play along the lines of the examples that we gave. Having all the inside information about everybody's life and the work of the ministry with the disciples and uh, tempted to go along with the Pharisees and grab hold of religious power and uh, control people's lives 
to uh, speak ill of them, to gossip about them, to involve himself in other people's business, to be judgmental in kinds of ways that are inappropriate for him. He was tempted every day of his life in the same ways that we are. See, he was a true man and he withstood all of the temptation. He never gave in in his thoughts, in his word, in his actions. Whatever you are facing, you remember that. He is a true man and faced temptation and resisted it unlike us and he never made excuse and gave in and said, well, I'm under a lot of pressure here. But he was a truly righteous man. He was the one who was always patient and always obedient to the law. After the suffering of his soul, he he sees the light of life and is satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. You see, the Lord's requirement for someone who would bear the iniquities of us on the cross would be that he would be righteous. And Jesus was that righteous man. Facing all of the temptation to the degree that we face it. There is nothing that we face that is a more powerful temptation than what he underwent. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was righteous. He was a truly righteous man. Such a high priest, Hebrews 7, meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, and pure, and set apart from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Because he was like us, but without sin. A true human, 100% man without sin. It is He, spoken of in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Him who had no sin. He had no sin. He made Him to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the unique qualifier of the Lord Jesus to be our mediator that he was a true man and that he withstood all of temptation and was faithful in his thoughts, words and actions that's what you mean when you say Jesus Christ died for my sins you say he was like me in every way except he was righteous I mean we are so casual with our sin we think that our sins are small And that, well, everybody does it, and everybody makes mistakes, and everybody falls into it. But that's a very paltry way of speaking about sin, and it really puts shame on the Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of His holiness. That in truth, He came as man and never sinned, even in a small, so-called small way. He was a true man who was our substitute. He took man's death deserved because of our sin on himself and the second qualification we'll close with this is that he must be true God to be our mediator right why was that let me ask you and you can answer question 17 in the catechism why must he also be true God
it isn't enough that Jesus is true man to sustain God's anger in our place, is it? But what makes Jesus uniquely qualified to take away our sin also is that He's true God. Acts chapter 20 verse 28 says something that is remarkable. Speaking to uh, the elders of the church, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which He bought with His own blood. Listen to that. Be shepherds of the church of God which God bought with His own blood. God bought the church with His own blood. And if you think about that, the logic behind that expression is that God has to be the one who takes away the sins of His people. It can't merely be a true and righteous man. It must be a true and righteous man. But He also must be true God. Because God is the one who is able to buy the church back with His own blood. Why did Jesus exactly? Let's be clear about this. Why is Jesus uniquely qualified to take away our sins as true God? Well, the answer goes like this. That in order for someone to take the eternal weight of God's anger upon himself and release others from it, he cannot merely be a man. He has to be God. I mean... Think about the extent of the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. How long will it last? Well, it would last for eternity, wouldn't it? And how long would it take a man, even if he was truly righteous and not sinful like we were, how long would it take a man to take the place of our punishment and to actually finish it and release us from it? Well, it would take him forever and he would never finish because he is a mere man. And it would go on and on and on and on forever. But Jesus, by the power of His Godhead, is able to take an eternal punishment on Himself at one time. He is able, as God, to exist outside of time, as it were. To exist in all points of time, at the same time, so that at one time in history, as true God, He might take an infinite punishment on Himself. No man could do that, you see. No matter how holy and righteous. Every sin that we commit is so exceedingly sinful that it cannot be expiated by the eternal destruction of any mere creature. Our sins are worse, deserve worse, than the punishment that would come upon someone eternally forever and ever and ever because he would never measure he would never finish the punishment and that's why we needed the power of the God man to come God himself at one point in time to bear the full weight of an eternal anger at only one point in time he died once for sinners right there was a limitation on the time 
in the earthly sense that Jesus spent paying for our sins. But you have to understand, lying behind that short time in which He took punishment was an eternity of the wrath of God being poured out upon Him. And no man could do that. No mere man could do that. His death on the cross was infinite in its greatness and dignity and its value. The kind of death that was necessary, the kind of substitution necessary to release us from an eternal punishment could only happen by God who transcends time and comes into time to bear an infinite weight at one point in time. That's what you mean when you say Jesus died for my sins on the cross. You mean that you owed an eternal punishment that nobody else could pay except God Himself to come and at one point take it all on Himself when the Lord forsook Him and release you from it. That's what you mean. And that He was just like you in every way except sin. And that having died for you, God will never punish you for what He has already punished Christ. Never. You do not stand condemned. You do not stand condemned when you look at your life and find all of your so-called small sins creeping up on you. You do not find yourself condemned when you make excuse. You do not find yourself condemned when you are under strong temptation and sometimes give in. But when you say that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, having asked for His mercy, and you know Him to be a true man just like you, except sin, and you know Him to be true God, who is able to bear an infinite punishment at one point in time and release you from it, then you know that you have been set free. And listen, He came for sinners. He did not come for the strong. He did not come for the people that had it all together. But if you here tonight are convicted of your sins as I am, and of your excuse making, and you cast yourself upon Christ, again, I declare to you the promise that He accepts you tonight. He loves you. He loves you in spite of who you are. And He is powerful enough, uniquely qualified, to say that He has saved you. Because He was qualified to do the work as true God and true man. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of Christ and His unique qualification to satisfy the claims of your justice against us. And uh, knowing that when we say Jesus died for our sins on the cross, we mean that He, as the true man the true righteous man and the true God bore our punishment and that uh, He took our place and that we are now set free uh, knowing this, this true gospel knowledge and uh, having rested in that and that alone, we have His life. Thank You for Your deep love and compassion to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.